Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the Witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. This will be no surprise to you, shocking to me what number we're on today. We're now on a nice sort of even sounding episode 50 of six. So welcome to episode 50 of the Witches of Scotland podcast. We've got our great guest today. We've got Dr. Kieran Jones, who's going to be talking to us about some of the history of the properties that belong in the National Trust of Scotland, and they are linked to different witch trials. But before that, Claire, Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you, Zoe. Were you taken by surprise by my yeah. Happy New Year yeah. there? Yes. I thought we were all business this morning, Zoe. No, that was a stealth happy year because it is our, our first of 2022. It is. Our first. Yeah. Yeah. It Good. <laughs> even, even though on the on the Twitter, I saw that you got your years confused. Oh, yeah. I invited everyone to think of a new podcast for 2021, which was not the best. Yeah. But no, also what was not the best was that I retweeted it and totally didn't even notice that you put 2021. <laughs> so I think you and I are both in the bin for time organisation. Yes. Yeah, sh- shout out to Sabrina, our longtime supporter and listener for pointing that out to us. Thanks, Sabrina. Yeah, it's helpful. Just if somebody could just get in touch with us on the daily and just remind us of what the day is and what the year is just for a wee while. We'll get there, I think, but we're just maybe not there yet. But this is episode 50. And it's very nice to have you all with us. We've just hit 75,000 downloads and Claire's put together a list of all the different countries that are um, that are listening or where downloads are happening. That isn't the full list, though, that you're going to tell people about. I just got to a point where I'm like, I can't keep writing these out, but there are other ones as well. Right. Well, I'm just going to read out what you've given me because we're just going to just show off a little bit about this. So over 75,000 downloads at the time of recording, it's bound to be far higher by the time it goes out. But our first, our listeners, our most downloadable areas are the UK and the USA, Australia and Canada. But there's also listeners in, okay, Germany, Ireland, Denmark, New Zealand, France, Spain, Netherlands, South Africa, Switzerland, Belgium, Finland, Italy, Thailand, Norway, Sweden, Japan, Israel, Portugal, Brazil, Serbia, Austria, Laos, Romania and Greece. Qatar, Mexico, Iceland, Argentina, Hungary, Russia, Kazakhstan, Turkey, Taiwan, Singapore, Philippines, South Korea, Luxembourg, Jersey, Estonia, India, Malaysia, Iran, Nigeria, Poland, Hong Kong, Oman, Jamaica, Czech Republic, Bulgaria, Dominican Republic. That's just the ones that you managed to actually type up, Claire. So that's quite shocking. Does it mean we can go on a world tour? Absolutely. There are more. It does say audience details, geographic region, because I was reading them and thinking, we can't possibly have that many people in different countries, but apparently so. I've checked the website and and that appears to be right. The ones in those last countries you you named are 1% or less than 1%, so it possibly means that just one or two. Clear, 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 clear. We'll take it. We're taking we'll take it. it. We're taking international it. audience. That's. I'm sure there must be town halls in those places that we can book. Two of the places that I never got to in the list were the Cayman Islands and Martinique. Oh, Claire, we need to do a business trip. <laughs> Would it be tax deductible? God, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? If the Tories can do it, why can't we? Anyway, <laughs> let's not go down that route. Particular route. I've got some potholes that need sorted out. Anyway, anyway, so. So that's one thing that's in the news, Claire. Have you got any other news that you'd oh, like to mention? That was seamless, Zoe. That was absolutely seamless. As ever. So, well, at the start of the year, we kicked off by being in the news. Over the Christmas and New Year period, it was so busy with folk getting in contact with us. I don't know. Nothing says Christmas like human rights campaigns. 
<laughs> perhaps, perhaps we um, we kicked off the new year um, on New Year's Day with uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal, and I think that because that's got a really wide readership, it kind of went everywhere and were contacted by lots of different people. Um, but that was a really good article, and we got lots of new American people getting in contact with. It us. was. He's a really great journalist, actually, because apart from anything else, he lives in an area that had had quite a high instance of of witch trials. So I think there was a really great connection there and it was it was really cool actually having something in the wall street journal because apart from anything else my teenage children are spectacularly unmoved by this whole situation but my 13 year old i said to him oh it's in the wall street journal and actually he went oh the wall street journal and i'm not really sure why that was of such importance to him i don't i mean i I don't think he reads it i don't think he has a subscription to it or anything but strange When I think about the Wall Street Journal, I think about the 80s and stocks and shares. Yeah. It was kind of a really big newspaper when I was growing up. It's like a real movie-like newspaper. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that a current 13-year-old would have that background. That's true. Maybe he does have a subscription to it. (laughs) That's where he gets all his financial news from. I'm not really sure. But anyway, it was cool that it was in the Wall Street Journal. And then yesterday... We um, saw ourselves on screen, which for me is always kind of hor- horrifying, but that was cool. So who was that with, Claire? It was. We spoke to Borders ITN, uh, along with Mary Craig, who has uh, been involved in the podcast uh, as well. She has written the book on Borders Witches, and she gave an interview about the people that were killed there. So ITN asked us to come on and speak for a little bit about the campaign so that was good too so we were in the news Zoe is what was in the quite news. quite exciting it's very exciting and then we've also got a couple of events that are coming up so we're speaking at an event well I say at an event it's done remotely isn't it so people can attend the event from anywhere it's one of these fantastic zoom type occasions so that's Lynn Lithgow on January the 19th and if people want to get tickets for that we'll put a link up we'll, we'll link to it on Twitter and stuff as well it's through Linlithgow Museum that is doing that. So if people want to get in contact, do that. And the other thing we're going to do, Zoe, hopefully, COVID restrictions allowing and all those sorts of things, is go and see Heal and Harrow on the 21st of January at Celtic Connections. So anyone who's wanting to see Heal and Harrow, they have done a mixed media, Would that would, is that how you would describe it? Mixed media? Document? Quite possibly. Yes, maybe. Yes. <laughs> They've got the written word of Mary Kidd, who was one of the first people to speak to us, and they have put music to the stories of a number of inverse commas witches from history. So sometimes they've taken the stories of the women and sometimes they've taken the stories of the confessions and turned them into both music and written word. So really looking forward to that. And if you can't make the Glasgow one on the 21st, we said before, but there's a there's a really quite a big list of places on their tour all over the place. So you should be able to catch them hopefully somewhere near you. And if you have a look for Heel and Harrow on Twitter, for example, you'll find them there and you'll get the tour dates. So that's quite exciting. That's some stuff to look forward to, which is always good for the early days of January to have some stuff in the diary. So Claire, as we are inclined to do each episode, do you have a list of women and possibly some men who were accused of witchcraft? I do. As we'll come to here, Kieran Jones, Dr. Kieran Jones, is looking specifically now at the allegations of witchcraft in Queen's Ferry. And I thought what we could do is read out a list of the people that were involved in witchcraft accusations in Queen's Ferry. So most of these accusations took place in either 1644 or 1649. There are a few other dates, but most of them are those dates. And I thought what I'd do is just read out the list of the names of those people so that we remember them today as folk and not as witches. Their names are Margaret Barton, Isabel Bathgate, Margaret Brown, Elspeth Cant, Janet Cant, Christian Cuthbertson, Marion Dolleen, Margaret Dolleen, Elspeth Grinlaw, Helen Hill, Agnes Lawson, Marion Little, Catherine Logie, Janet Lorry, Janet Mowbray, Marion Steen, Janet Stephen, Christian Syme, Catherine Thompson, Helen Thompson, Isabel Young and Margaret Young. We remember all these people as men and women and not as witches. 
so many people in that list it's just terrible when you just keep coming back to thinking about it for, for such a small place mm-hmm. as Queensferry yeah. and Queensferry's tiny now but you imagine it when the size of the whole of Scotland was less than a million it's quite astounding it's something that actually came up there was a bit of chat about this last night after the news piece on ITN was aired about what happened in the borders and there was some footage of Mary Craig the historian standing talking about a particular area still in the borders and just thinking about what it looks like now it's like you know it's pretty pretty spread out and it's quite isolated and what it must be like to live in these small communities when when this was happening very frightening indeed to put yourself in their shoes but thanks very much Claire. So Guest today is Dr. Kieran Jones, and he's a historian of religion and witchcraft in early modern Scotland. And he recently completed his PhD in Scottish history at the University of Edinburgh in 2020. His thesis explored the relationship between Calvinism and witchcraft trials, and it focused on the religious and spiritual aspects of some accused witches' confessions. Kieran's research has been published in History Scotland magazine, the Scottish History Society, and a chapter of his thesis is due to appear in the next volume of the Journal of Magic, Ritual and Witchcraft, which is published by the University of Pennsylvania. So without any further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kieran Jones. Hi, hi Zoe. Hi, Claire. Good to see you. It's great to have you here. We actually met you in real life, which is very, very unusual on the podcast because a lot of these interviews are just done via Zoom and we never actually meet the person. We had the lovely opportunity to meet you back in 2021, <laughs> other, the other year there. And I think it would be helpful, first of all, Kieran, if you would tell people what it was that brought us to meet you, because I think that that's it's such a fascinating thing. Can you share that? Yeah, yeah, I can share that. So Probably around May last year, 2021, I was contacted by the National Trust for Scotland and they commissioned me to do some research into their properties, looking at the connections between their properties and uh, the Scottish witchcraft trials. And the project at the time was just to basically draw up an internal report that put forward these connections in some of their properties. And that means the names of the locations, any sort of stories or or narratives that were associated with these properties about witchcraft. Because, you know, there was some perhaps some misinformation in one of their uh, membership magazines that perhaps could have been better researched. The National Trust felt that the time was right to do some more deeper research into their properties. So when they put out, you know, public information, that it's it, it's quite accurate and sensitive about the witch trials and, and this particular topic. And then I think that coincided with your campaign, your podcast, which you by that point, you've been running for about over a year. I think by May of last year, you were quite well known and you had quite a lot of listeners around the world. So I think that's how we crossed paths. And then... We met at a local conference that the National Trust had organised in Kakadi back in the summer when the weather was much nicer than it is now. And that was where I just presented a, a small presentation on the, uh, the report that I had done for them. And yeah, that's how, that's how we met. And was that your area of interest, Kieran, before the National Trust approached you and asked you to do this piece of work as well? I got interested in this topic by chance, really. I studied history at school and a lot of it had been quite modern history, you know, looking at Nazi Germany or or Soviet Russia or looking at, you know, British prime ministers, which I think still is to this day some of the standard history curriculums. And uh, so when I got to university and studied history as an undergraduate, I was, you know, not surprised, but I was excited by the fact that, you know, I had now the chance to study, you know, more a more broader selection of historical periods and there was this one course being offered I think it was called state formation and the law in early modern Europe and I thought well I'd never done any early modern history and early modern history is you know the the period from about roughly 1500 to 1800 and lots of things took place lots of wars lots of technological economic and societal changes took place in that time and I thought okay I'll I'll give it a go but then uh, there were a couple of topics on that course to do with witchcraft. 
And so I really got interested in the relationship between witchcraft and the law and the fact that, you know, these early modern kingdoms and early modern territories passed laws against something called witchcraft. And they took it very seriously. And, you know, before that, I just heard about witchcraft through TV shows and, and saw it as some sort of superstitious thing. So, yeah, very much interested in witchcraft and the law. But the university I went to, we only had one early modern lecturer and they, they were German. So I ended up looking at a lot of German witchcraft history uh, and some English witchcraft history. My original ambition is to become a history school teacher. But then I thought, I loved this research side of things so much, I want to take it further. So I went on to do postgraduate work to do a master's. And I thought, well, I don't speak German and I could, I could take some time out to learn German, but I didn't know how long that was going to take me and you know, whether this would just be a fleeting interest. And by the time I'd learned German, I would you know, have lost interest in pursuing history as, uh, uh, further. So I thought... I'd done a lot on England, but but I knew about Scotland. You know, it was in some of the core academic edited books, you know, where you can read all about witchcraft. And Scotland always featured, you know, either in footnotes or in chapters of books. I thought, you know, I'll give it a go. And then I came up to Edinburgh and that's how I got onto witchcraft in Scotland and became more fascinated actually with Scottish history and religion. So, yeah, so that's how I got onto this topic. I didn't realise that you had the sort of the legal background interest Mm. as well, which I'm sure will be of interest to Claire. It is really fascinating. And I think one of the things that I want to talk to you a little bit about today is the myth busting, which you've kind of alluded to already. The idea you had going in to study the background of the witch trials was, was kind of an idea from TV and film, which I think we've talked about a lot on the podcast, is that our sort of cultural ideas of what witchcraft and what the witch trials were and what you know what happened in fact people that were accused are really very much informed by tv programs and by films which is a really bizarre kind of a loop of often complete nonsense and I'm wondering when you first started studying it was there anything that still stays in your mind that you thought oh wow that's that didn't happen like that yeah I think the most one that struck me quite a lot was that most of the people that, that were accused considered themselves to be Christian or identified as, as Christians. Whereas in a lot of TV shows that I had watched, you know, their own personal faith isn't really discussed at all, or they have some sort of connection to some modern pagan sort of nature, nature God. If religion is entirely absent, then the sort of the theme of faith or power is filled by sort of, you know, feminism or something like that. So I was quite interested when I came to studying those people that were accused. You know, I, I wasn't expecting to see, you know, these very powerful young women that you seen like Charmed or Buffy the Vampire Slayer or other sort of, you know, teenage pop dramas, but actually sort of, you know, middle-aged women who I, yeah, identified strongly as, as Christian. That stuck with me and still does um, to this day. It's so interesting, isn't it, that the idea that there were these women hundreds of years ago who were as far from empowered as you can possibly imagine, and as Christian as you can possibly imagine, that through time, first of all, the people became a figure of fun, and then they became icons, I suppose, for feminism, strong, powerful women. It's really, really strange that that turned, and it's really not surprising as a result of that. A lot of people have got really the wrong idea about witchcraft. I mean, it's it's perfectly understandable that people have that issue. Yeah, and I think that's, um, you know, you see it even in quite well-known tabloid articles today about some of these myths being regurgitated. And I think that's because you know, the where people get their information from, you know, is the internet. People don't readily go into their local library and pick up a history book on witchcraft, or they don't, you know, order one from Amazon or wherever they can get it from their university library, because it's just more convenient to do a Google search and see what they can find on the internet. So I think that's, yeah, that's, that's sometimes why these things persist. Yeah, I think we spoke to Owen Jones about that and his, his, sort of howling into the abyss of trying to tell people things about witchcraft that is just trying to basically trying to fight the internet with information and you know he gets up every day and still does it and so do you so thanks very much thanks very much for that you're welcome 
when you start to do the research for the National Trust, is that they've got a lot of properties. So how did you narrow in on particular areas or particular buildings? It was really useful for me to get a list of their properties. I think they have just over 100 or just under, I can't remember off the top of my head now, I think it's over just over 100 properties. And what was really helpful to begin with to try and narrow down which properties had some sort of connection, whether it be a direct connection with the property, and that means sort of, you know, either, you know, an accused witch, you know, had been executed, for example, or accused in the immediate vicinity of where that property is, or perhaps the landed family who used to own that property, whether they were involved in witchcraft prosecution. So I called that a direct connection or sort of a peripheral connection would be, well, a connection, there's no direct connection with the property, but perhaps there was a witch trial that took place, you know, a few few miles down the road or an accused witch um, lived in a, in a nearby town or village. So in order to sort of get a sense of those connections, I used the, um, the University of Edinburgh's recent map, the witches.is map, which basically took a lot of the data from the Survey of Scottish Witchcraft database, which was done in 2003 by Julian Goodair, um, Louise Yeoman and Joyce Miller and Lauren Martin, took all that data and basically visual- visualised it on this online interactive map, which made it incredibly easy and useful to tr- to look at the spatial connections. And that really allowed me to narrow down the, the, the properties that potentially had connections. And how many properties did you find that had connections out of that 100? About 39 properties. That's, that's so, a lot. Actually, I'm surprised it's that many. Yeah, quite a few. I can't remember off the top of my head the split between what I call direct and peripheral, but there would be some some sort of connection. Usually the most common was that the historical owners of the historical families who used to own these properties were either involved in, you know, involved in the prosecution. That was probably the biggest connection um, that I found, particularly, um, yeah, in sort of the, the, the buildings, the building properties. So is that the buildings that were owned by people who had wealth and status and power and influence were the people who were the commissioners of investigation I think they call commissioners in the the survey of Scottish witchcraft so it's mostly the connection with them that's recorded rather than the people themselves that were accused to be witches is that right yeah there is more there's more evidence I think of the the wealthy and those with status because they were the ones that left behind they were more like the ones to leave behind a trail of evidence you know they were the ones that more were likely to be able to write and record their own, you know, diaries or records, or their name is more likely to appear in the the type of evidence that survives, which are the commissions. That's the most common form of evidence that survives that's a, that allows us to track these witch trials that took place in Scotland. And because of the nature of the commissions, the wealthy men who sat on them on these commissions, their name is on them. Although I would say, even though the report doesn't have as much detail as, as you know, most people would like about those who accused, at least their names are recorded in the report. So I tried to track as far as possible if certain accused witches were, were accused nearby or executed that I recorded their names and recorded as much as I could about them. I think that's the best that we can do, really, isn't it? I mean, there isn't that sort of depth of of information that you would like to have. You know, I think that now people are so used to being able to obviously not proper academic researchers. You don't do this. But the sort of your lay researchers are so used to being able to just look stuff up on the Internet. It's frustrating that actually there is there is a dead end. It could just be a name. And we have every week when we do the podcast, we give a list of different people that were accused and try and tell as much of their stories as we possibly can. But, you know, Claire, when she does the research and finds the information, often it is just somebody's name and it says, you know, executed. And there might be a date, there might be a little bit more information, but often it's really scant, which is why we're going to be doing an episode hopefully quite soon where we look at how people research their background because when we we've been interviewed by various newspapers who've said can you please put us in touch with a direct descendant of somebody that was executed we always kind of go well no not really because the records just don't exist and I think that it's really interesting what you've said there about it's the people that were that had the money and the power that are recorded and they often were the accusers or were involved in the sort of the court side of things 
you know, so I, we've got one woman who got in touch with us from America who's discovered that she is, and this is proven, that she's descended from one of the accusers and we're going to have her on. But that was easy to prove or easier to prove because it had been recorded, because they had money. And like you say, they could write and they had property and you could follow it all down that way. But for sort of ordinary people, the, the accused and the executed there, you know, and we've talked before as well about the names that are repeated over and over again in Scotland. There are lots and lots and lots of, as you've said yourself, Janet's in different permutations. Names weren't necessarily spelled consistently or correctly because, you know, people couldn't write. So it's a really fascinating area when people say, oh, I'm descended from this person that was burnt at the stake. And we have to say, well, that didn't actually, that wasn't a thing in Scotland. Then they tell us that they're related. And I'm always curious about where their rigorous research is and how they would prove that line backwards. So I'll be interested to speak to genealogists at some point and see what they can do. But it's amazing that you've been able to have a look at these different properties and you've listed the names where you can and you've looked at the connections because it makes history so much more real, doesn't it? you know, for non-historians to go to one of these properties and say, oh, now I can look at this research and I know that this person was linked to here. It's fascinating. It's really interesting work that you've done. Yeah, yeah. I think there can be ways to develop it further. So I don't know what the National Trust is planning to do with the report, but I think we discussed at the conference back in um, the summer of the various sort of ways you could visualise the data online, a bit like what Edinburgh University have done with the map and perhaps, you know, put out this data on some sort of online map so people can actually tangibly look at the map and make the connections, which perhaps makes it a bit more easier to, to look at than just reading a report. I think it's going to be helpful for, for the NTS staff at local properties, you know, who interact with the public who may up till now perhaps not have had good, well-researched information and now they can refer to this report and when they speak to visitors and members of the public who come to specific properties where I've identified connections perhaps they'll be able a bit more confident to be able to just talk about this topic with visitors um, which also helps the visitors as well because then you know they get some good information while actually visiting the property itself. It's fantastic work that you're doing and particularly delighted that people, as you say, will be able to go and find out about these things. I think one of my first questions when we came and spoke to you is, is the information going to be publicly available? Are you going to be able to show us it? And I really, really hope that that's the way the NTS decide to go forward. It's good that you mentioned that because I looked at the just a couple of days ago and the report actually has been made available to view publicly and it's been updated and the NTS have you know put some nice cover pages on and and perhaps improved upon a lot of my uh, writing. But yeah, if you go to the, if you type in on just Google NTS witchcraft history or NTS research, you can download the project report as a PDF and it has a contents page. And so it's, it, they've obviously made it available publicly. Oh, that's brilliant because, I mean, we had such a good day. We were at Curis, which mm-hmm. of course is a very, very important in terms of witchcraft history in Scotland, being nearby to Torryburn, the place where Lilith Aidy's grieve, put the word grieve in inverted commas, not grieve when you're in a podcast, is it was such a fascinating day. I can tell the listeners that it was not only one of the sunniest, most beautiful days of the year, but we were in a room with you know no windows I'm only imagining it was no windows it did have windows so interesting was the chat that we ended up having there was yourself Professor Goodair was there members of the NTS were there and we had such a good chat that well past finishing time when we all should have gone we were still there an extra 45 minutes weren't we just chatting about I suppose, the discourse of witchcraft in the modern day, when usually any conference I've been to on law, as soon as it's like quarter to the time that something's supposed to finish, everyone's like, finish up now, please. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm so delighted that that information is going to be made available for everybody. It was a really great response from the National Trust because I remember when this first kind of happened, somebody had brought it to, this sounds like we're in charge, somebody had brought it to our attention that the National Trust had had these kind of sort of semi, they were kind of inappropriate the way that it was written in, in the newsletter. It was a bit too jovial. And we were quite near the beginning, I think, of the campaign. And there were a few people that got in touch and said, oh, have you seen this? 
and we got in touch with the National Trust and they were really, really responsive very quickly and sort of said, oh, you're right, we've got the tone wrong with that when we're going to look into that. And we were so heartened by the fact that they took it seriously and then they got you on board and that you've been able to then clarify and expand what the knowledge is that's there because really that's what we're looking for at the end of the day is for there to be clarity and for people to understand the history and not to make stuff up or to go about with these kind of wrong-headed you know Hollywoodized ideas about what's going on there was an article that came out a few days ago in I think the Guardian that was about reclaiming the idea of witches and it was from quite what I would describe as a kind of a neo-pagan lens of looking at it and and using phrases like the burning times and the witch wound and stuff like that what do you think of people kind of reclaiming the history of witch trials in those terms yeah i, I don't necessarily have a, have a problem with it as long as i say the, the history is being talked about correctly so you know if it's about claiming sort of empowerment or getting some positivity you know healing some trauma um, making modern day comparisons. I think that is needed. Um, we, you know, I think, and it's quite innovative type of, of thinking. And obviously, for people's sense of personal identity and their own livelihoods, they find some meaning in it. But as long as the as the history is being, I say, talked about correctly, but as we see in these types of articles, far too often, the history is unfortunately not being talked about correctly, or is, is not really being researched that well. Well, I think one of the biggest areas that Claire and I, I think, have both been told repeatedly by different academics and researchers is that in these times, people absolutely were Christian. They were they were all Christian. And they'd be horrified to, to have this accusation of being a witch or of, you know, being in league with the devil thrown at them because they genuinely believed in, in the devil and the idea of that kind of evil and so on. And they genuinely believed themselves to be Christians. Yeah, yeah, and I think what you find with some of these these modern groups that like to talk about reclaiming the you know the witches or looking to take some you know some positives away from what happened is that they do tend to either intentionally or unintentionally put forward the idea that the witches who were accused and executed in the witch trials were also pagan or were sort of descended from these people who were executed, which is not true. They did consider themselves to be Christian. People in the early modern period wouldn't have, wouldn't view witchcraft as a positive force. It was something to be feared and reckoned with. The, the idea of witchcraft was specifically about harmful magic. It wasn't about practicing good magic which is what a lot of modern groups particularly modern pagans view witchcraft today to them witchcraft is about positivity goodness practicing spells it's not about harmful magic and i think that distinction between historical witchcraft and modern day witchcraft gets lost in some of these quite emotive and quite altruistic you know claims of reclaiming the witch trials or you know finding them quite liberating for modern people today yeah, I think that's true. Um, you don't want to rain on anyone's parade that's finding positives to take from these mm-hmm. things. We just keep having to come back to the historical fact. And I think one of our earliest podcasts we had uh, on Professor Goodyear, who the poor man uh, spoke to us, I think, for about five hours altogether. And we have three podcasts right at the very start with him. And he goes into some length about the start of that in the 1930s and the growing pagan community and how the sort of two stories became intertwined and I think it's part of his life's work as well to kind of ensure that they remain unentwined as far as anyone speaking to him about it. Can you tell us when you were looking at your researches was there any stories in particular or any building in particular that struck you that had a particular resonance or interest for you when you were doing it you know perhaps any building that you thought how bizarre I wouldn't have thought there'd been witchcraft links there I think one of the um the properties that stuck with me was Gladstone's land which I think you know sparked off a lot of this project generating the report and what have you is uh, as Gladstone's land which is in itself is you know uh, a fairly um obvious 17th century building from you know looking at it and, and its history but can I just say for, for listeners, because we've got listeners worldwide, Gladstone's Land's one of the oldest buildings in Edinburgh, which still exists in the form that it was in hundreds of years ago. 
And up till recently, what they did was on each floor, they went through a different century, putting in the furniture of the time so that the, the first century was like, it was basically pretty much like a sty. It would show you where the animals stayed and where you stayed. And then the next floor, it was more sophisticated and then the floor above it. But it's all changed now, 21st century. It's got an ice cream parlour at the bottom of it and it's got different floors going up. And one of the floors has got rooms in it that people can stay in. And one of those rooms is named after a local minister, and that's Struthers. Is that right? Yeah, w William Struthers. He was um, an Episcopalian uh, bishop in the 1630s, and he was involved in the case of Marion Muir, who was an accused witch from around the Leith area in, in early 1630s. And what struck me about, even though William Struthers himself didn't really have a major role in her trial, it was interesting that through looking through him and his connections, I learned a bit more about Marion Muir and what she had to go through. And her trial was pretty, pretty rigorous. Um, she had a few interrogations, which were, which were quite standard. Um, but she was also examined by a doctor, a physician of the day, who also came to the conclusion perhaps that she may have not been in the right mind, that perhaps something was ailing her that wasn't to do with witchcraft, but he didn't, he wasn't very vocal about it to the Privy Council, who was the ultimate authority on, on deciding um, which, witchcraft trials. So that was quite interesting to get that sort of medical perspective, you know, a doctor being brought in, because you don't usually see that in, in witchcraft trials. It happens Occasionally in the late 1600s, there's a famous example of Christine Shaw of Bargaran, you know, surrounding the, the, the Paisley witch trials and the cases of her demonic possession. And a doctor is called in to examine her. So there's that case, but it's very, very rarely that you find evidence of doctors being called in. So that stuck with me. You know, look, I, I didn't expect, you know, as a witchcraft historian, I had kind of some expectations of what I was going to find. But when I looked at Gladstone's land, and William Struthers, who's an Episcopalian bishop and who was involved in the interrogation, I didn't think that would lead me to an interrogation where a doctor was called in to testify. And that's such a shame that the doctor did speak about mental abilities and made that comment because, of course, we, we know that Marion was executed as a witch. Isn't that right? Yeah, she was. Um, it's quite interesting because he had prescribed her some sort of medication, but According to the to the doctor's testimony, Marion was quite stubborn and just refused to to go back and see him, and so that's why he didn't really he wasn't quite vocal um, in defending her because he thought that she was perhaps being a bit stubborn, which is why the, the the Privy Council again decided to try her as a witch. It's unbelievable if you just think there's a woman she's in Leith, she's called a witch, she's not a witch, and then in order to test whether or not she's a witch, I suppose, part of the evidence against her is finding out whether or not she is well enough mentally. And when she says, I don't need any of your medication, well, maybe because she wasn't a witch, that was something that didn't assist her in her case. You know, we just never know what the actuality of why she refused that. But it's just so, so, so sad to hear. But at least now we know much more about Marion. And I think the National Trust whilst the name of the room is still after Struthers, have made great efforts to tell the story of Marion so that people going there know the history of that woman as well. So I think that's really important that her name is given some recognition. I think that's really important. If we are going to talk about witchcraft trials and talk about the people that were involved in the interrogations, at the very least we ought to highlight, if we know them, the names of the people that suffered as a result of the miscarriage of justice. It's kind of an unpalatable thing for us now because I think there's such a move to say, well, somebody did a bad thing or they were involved in a bad thing, so they must be kind of stricken from the records. I think that's really interesting because Struthers, it's been said, and you mentioned there, Karen, he didn't actually play a very big part in it. You know, it's not that he wasn't 
some guy that was kind of the driving force and was like, I denounce all these women and quickly strangle them. It wasn't sort of that side of things. And I think that that's something that the National Trust had said to us at the time was, well, he wasn't really that involved, but I think it's important that we do do the research with history or that somebody you know reputable like you Kieran does the does the research and then can tell us actually the complex and difficult facts of being human at any time in history you know people often did what we would look back and say well that was a terrible thing and, and so it was but it was a big and complex societal issue you know it wasn't just a case of the simplified version that we sometimes hear now which is that men got together and went right we hate women let's kill lots of them it wasn't as straightforward as that it was it was a much more complex kind of legal background that obviously we've spoken about before and it was something that wasn't something used by the state and that was everybody bought into it it was a whole societal belief system so I think it's really fascinating to humanize that as well and to see people's real stories about what happened there as much as we possibly can. Kieran, right on that point that Zoe makes, I think I saw you tweeting and it was so interesting. You said it's not helpful to call these things panics because they weren't panics, they were the opposite of panics. Yeah, that's right. I mean, quite a few historians disagree about what terms should be used, panics, witch hunts, witch trials. Satanic rhymes with panic. That's really it, isn't it? Sorry. You know, historians disagree, but I think you've got some historians like you had Professor Goodair on quite early on, who was also my supervisor, and he would be someone who would who would use the word panic to describe, you know, these quite large witch hunts that, uh, ha, you know, where it's a sort of a chain reaction where multiple suspects are interrogated and name others, and it, and it sort of snowballs out of control. He would use the word panic to describe those types of of, of uh, witch trials, but I would probably use the word witch hunt rather than panic, because even though tragically multiple people were accused and executed and people were naming each other, there was still some sort of legal process that was followed, even in a, such a decentralised legal system as Scotland as it was in the 1600s. There were still some checks and balances that needed to be in place, and which is ultimately why we have these records, because there needed to be some accountability uh, and we have that in the form of the, the the depositions, the confessions, in some cases, the trial records or the processes of what was going on. And, you know, also some of the people, you know, involved in doing the prosecution, you know, they weren't sort of running around with their hair, hands up, flaring around, not knowing what they were doing. You know, even if they weren't trained in the law, they were knowledgeable about their communities or perhaps, you know, on spiritual matters. So I tend to use the the term witch hunt particularly if you, you can tell if it's also being directed uh, at certain people, whereas the word, I think, panic, to sort of the general reader, it gives the impression that these things were sort of out of control, there were no sort of due process, they were being run by people who didn't know what they're doing, which is not the case um, in Scotland or any other sort of European state that pursued witch trials. Which I think is why it's so fascinating that some people's response to us asking for a pardon, and this has come up a little bit recently, is people saying, well, they don't need a pardon. Why are, why are you pardoning them? That shows that they've done something wrong and that, you know, that they're, you know, and we've had, Claire's had to explain a few times what it really means legally. And I think it's important that we recognise that, that this was something that was done legally and correctly, you know, if we can use that word, it was following generally a proper organised and socially agreed structure, you know, that we now find obviously distasteful. But that's one of the reasons we're looking for a pardon is because it wasn't just somebody randomly just grabbing people and accusing them. It was a very organised and orderly time in that respect. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the one of the reasons why you, your campaign is is so good is because, you know, you're seeking the pardon and I think it's the apology and the national uh, memorial monument to be set up. And you're putting forward these cases really well. I think you had um, Owen Davies on recently who said about, you know, you know, whatever people's views on pardons are or what, what have you, you know, the education value that these have, the amount of people who think more deeply about this topic and perhaps won't go to, you know, Google quickly, they'll think, well, I heard this speaker on this podcast, they recommended this book, or, you know, that's, that's maybe more interesting, digging a bit deeper about this topic. I think the educational benefits really outweigh all sort of the, the negatives you get about people's personal opinions on pardons and, and, and monuments and what have you. Because it's something that I will admit, I was insomniac last night and I engaged a little bit on Facebook with somebody after the, sorry, Claire, 
after the the Guardian comments about the article oh, came out, I know I'm sorry. It was Americans. It's the time zone. There were some crazy ideas. I was very polite though, and just and just said, "Oh, we're asking for a pardon and apology." And there were a couple of people that said that said, "Oh, what's the point? You know, what's the point?" But they've been dead for hundreds of years, and it's the same thing that we come back to all the time. Particularly for me as a teacher, it's about education. It's about you know, as you're saying there, saying to people, "Well, think a little bit more about it. Think about." what happened and why some of these things occurred. Think about who you are now and who we are now as humans and what we can learn from the past. You know, I don't I don't think that there's any reason to say, well, it was 300 years ago and therefore let's just forget about it. I don't agree with that at all. I think the more we know about our past, the better we can be as humans now, which mm-hmm. maybe sounds a bit hippie-ish. Can I say that my favourite response so far of all the responses has been someone who set out a long diatribe and block capitals shouting and block capitals as to why we weren't doing enough like we we ourselves and I was like well, well I'm sorry but if you want to start a campaign which goes far and beyond what we're doing we're totally there for you we'll we'll we'll, we'll be listening to you we'll be, the person we'll be delighted the person that I was talking to in the middle of the night last night said to me it's pointless looking at the, an apology for 300 years ago and a pardon for 300 years ago Why don't you sort things out for women now? I was like, dude, if you know how to sort things out for women now, please share with me the golden rules. And I I will keep working away at that as well. But I can't fix everything. But this is one thing that we can say, you know, like bring it out into the light and talk about it. And it it hopefully would have a positive impact on today. So it's it's not surprising you can't get any sleep if you're up in the middle of the night thinking, how can I solve all the problems for women? And I haven't worked out a solution, Claire. (laughs) (laughs) To just quickly talk about, you know, people who say, well, well, can't you do more? I think, you know, until very recently, it was something that, you know, was considered to be a niche academic subject. Well, it's not anymore. uh, And people are engaging with the history you know, uh, not just people who have done PhDs or done degrees, you know, just every, you know, general readers, members of the public who want to know more about this topic. So, yeah, I think you're, you're doing quite a lot. I wasn't fishing for a compliment. That's very, very I'll, I'll take the compliment. <laughs> we'll take it. Because we really didn't at all intend for this to sort of go on for as long as it has. I mean, we knew it would take time to get a pardon and apology. We knew that. But when we started the podcast, I mean, we keep saying this, we only intended to do six episodes and you're in episode 50, Kieran. So, you know, there's so much information, but people are, are so fascinated with it. We're fascinated with it. You know, it's 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 just an amazingly interesting topic. So I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to know about something that's interesting. We should make clear that we weren't, we certainly weren't the first to talk about having a national monument or indeed a pardon. There have been people long before us, including Julian. I think I saw articles over 10 years ago where Julian was calling for a national memorial. But what was absent then, I suppose, was the framework around which we've talked about it. Because despite the fact that, that he was earnestly talking about it as an academic talking about why it would be good to have a national memorial it was still being talked about as haha witches here's the the fun here's spooky things and it's still happening to us you know we've we've sometimes got really great articles we had really recently an article in fact january the first the wall street journal published an article about it and we're like great and they took it seriously but then there was still a picture of at least it was three witches from macbeth that was it was taken from a historical thing but the pictures that are being put along with these still there's a disconnect between the reality of history and what a terrible thing happened to people and how we show these. So I think really what's happened is that over time, views have changed about how we view these people and it gives more weight to the argument that we should properly memorialise what's happened. So yeah, just wanted to give a shout out to, to Julian, who at least a decade or so was saying, could we have a national memorial? Kieran. You told me in discussions that you are doing more witchcraft investigations, in particular in Queensferry. Is that right? Yeah, I am slowly uh, in my in my own time because I, I don't have an academic career. So I just I work on this project, you know, whenever I can. So there, yeah, I, I 
I was really interested in looking, there's been lots of work on, you know, Scottish witchcraft for decades, starting with, you know, Christina Lana in the 1980s, and it's progressed um, very nicely till now. And we've got far newer studies, and we understand a bit more about the dynamics of, of witch hunting, where it took place, when witchcraft um, cases stopped and when they ended, how much uh, belief persisted for, you know, until and when after the trials stopped. You know, so we have lots of studies of the dynamics of witch hunting and witch trials at a regional level, perhaps even, you know, across multiple counties and territories across particularly lowland Scotland. But there's been some work on, on the highlands, too. But I still think we don't understand some of the actual dynamics of individual trials. What happened when in a witch trial in a particular parish? You know, what was the relationship like between the prosecuting authorities there, or perhaps the the more wealthy community members and those who were accused. You know, we still need to understand these local dynamics more. So I really became interested in Queen's Ferry really out of chance because the witch hunt at Queen's Ferry took place in the 1640s, which is a time when the Covenanters are, are in power, you know, this radical um, religious group that sees uh, control of a lot of political and ecclesiastical institutions across Scotland, and they're putting forward, you know, their own vision of a, of a godly Scotland. And one of the um, aims of these covenanters and, you know, sections of higher Scottish society is to crack down on on witches, which they think are, are on the increase. And this makes sense because the 1640s is at a time, you know, of war, of famine, of plague, and, you know, coupled with this you know, this quite zealous radical religious vision. So the witch hunter at Queen's Ferry happens among all these different things that are going on. Um, and it's really spearheaded by a deeply committed covenanter called Ephraim Melville, who's the grandson of James Melville, a famous um, Presbyterian from the late 16th, early 17th century. And, you know, we still don't understand a lot about the minister's role in particular witch trials and, and the local dynamics. So I'm looking at, you know, how Melville sort of control and spearheaded the, the prosecution um, and his role in it, because the general consensus is that witch trials that took place in the local communities, the initial accusations were either put forward to the Kirk session, which was the local church court, or the Kirk session took the initiative to investigate rumours. And there's been lots of work on the corporate nature of the Kirk session as a whole, which was made up of the local minister and elders, which are prominent uh, members of the community. But the minister as an individual hasn't really been looked at in much more detail. And I wanted to understand what was going on at Queen's Ferry in 1643. How did the witch hunt develop? So that's really what I'm doing. And I'm going to see also if there's any connections between other witch trials that happened during that time, because it takes place to say in 1643 to 1644. And that's been identified as sort of a small peak in witch hunting. There was a, a big peak in 1649 to 50. There's been a lot of scholarly work done on that peak, but 1643 to 1644 hasn't really been studied before. So I'm wondering if any of my research into Queen's Ferry and what happened there will perhaps develop further looking at other witch trials more regionally as well. And how do you go about researching things like that? Where, you know, for somebody that's not a historic researcher, how do you actually find that information? I mean, if you're not a, a, a trained historian and can't read the manuscript records, you can get some of your information from the Survey of Scottish Witchcraft database. Uh, it doesn't give you that much, but you can look at the names of people involved in the trials and it will give you maybe one or two sentence information about, about what happened. Occasionally, you can find in 19th century printed publications, you can find copies of trial records that have been transcribed. Usually, it's just the commission, um, again, which will give you some more information about perhaps who was being tried. It will, of course, give you the name of the commissioners who sat on, sat on the trials. It can be a mixed bag because there are some commissions where the interrogation process has been transcribed and copied out. Um, and so you actually get quite a bit of information of the confessions and, and what the witches um, said under what the accused witches said under under interrogation and, and torture. But most often it's just the name of the commissioners and the short sentence saying that a trial is, you know, is being held on this date, for example. Yeah. So it's usually in these 19th century printed antiquarian publications of these, you know, people in the in the 19th century who had read the manuscripts and transcribed them themselves. 
Um, so other people can look at the trial records that way. Do you go back and look at the manuscripts? Oh, me, yes. And then you're yeah. pouring over everything. And I've seen little little snippets of things that people have sometimes shared in Twitter saying, look, what does this actually say? Can anybody else give me your best guess? How on earth do you get to understand what that writing actually says? I think it's just it's just training. There are far more people who historians, but who also are not historians, who can read you know, handwriting from the 1600s much better than I can. But I went into, I think it was an intensive sort of six-week paleography course at the uh, National Records of Scotland. Uh, I think it was once a week, every Tuesday, you know, from September till January or something like that, September to December. Um, and it was a hands-on class. So you would go in and they would give you, you know, photocopies of the records and you would sit and every week you would go through the, the records. So actually just, you know, looking at the records, a lot of it's trial and error as well. You know, so if we, you know, to work out a certain word, if you can recognize some of the letters, but you're stuck on getting some of them, you can kind of just try and make a, a good guess and see if it fits the context of, of the sentence. But yeah, it's about learning the letter, the letters and how they were written and what some of the, the abbreviations mean and things like that. But of course, with these type of documents, you know, uh, the spelling and things like that weren't standardized. So punctuation, forget about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, spelling of certain words, you know, you could be reading a, a paragraph and the same word pops up a few times and it's spelled differently each time. And it could be a very, you know, it could be someone's name or it could be, uh, you know, another word. You can learn it in six weeks if you if you put your mind to it. <laughs> need to get a crack team of um, of English secondary teachers in. That's yeah, like, that sounds yeah. like marking that I would, would have done in the past where you're like, well, this is a very eccentric approach to the spelling of these words. It's quite often. But I don't know how you do it, though. It must absolutely do your head in sitting, looking at these really tiny. I, I imagine it to be really tiny, sort of impenetrable scribbles in certain ways. It does take a while and you could be spending hours on, you know, the same paragraph um, or even sometimes the same sentences trying to work out the exact meaning of the words I find exhilarating <laughs> when you do crack it and you know you know you've read this document and you've got some new information I actually put I, I really enjoy the the archival work the primary research more than actually writing <laughs> the actual eventual whatever it becomes you know a publication of some yeah. sort I'm, a lot of I'm, these are accessible online as well is it our Scotland that now has uh, Scotland's like, people I think sorry, it's called Scotland's, Scotland's people yeah. that now has these online because I clicked on myself my instinct is to go oh I would really really love to do that and then as Zoe says you click on it and you go nah I think I'll leave that to the professionals <laughs> but uh yeah so the, the church court records these are these Kirk session records that I mentioned that's mainly what I'm using at the moment to to look at Queensferry the Queensferry witch hunt because that's really only what survived um so these records are usually they're not the trial records, they're information before the trial has been granted. So this is the Kirk session collecting as much evidence as it can, whether that be in the form of, you know, confessions or just documenting the general process of what's happening. Like such on such and such day, this accused witch was taken and imprisoned. You know, a month later, this happened. So you can get a general sense of what, what was going on. So that's the record I'm, I'm using. Um, and they're the ones that you can access on the Scotland's People's website. You don't actually have to go into the National Records of Scotland anymore and sit on one of their computers and read it digitally. You can sit from home and access them for free. Well, Kieran, I think we definitely will want you to come back on again and speak about your researches in Queensferry, if that's at all possible. But can you tell us just now, give us a, a small glimpse into the story of Queensferry? I know that you're at an early stage, but just maybe approximately how many people were involved in it or anything that you can give us, any tidbits you can give us just now? Yeah, so as I said, the, the minister, Ephraim Melville, is the important character in this story. Quite often the minister would sometimes be present at confessions. We discussed um, uh, William Struthers earlier, who was in, involved in the interrogation of Marion Muir. So sometimes a minister would be present at the, the interrogation, but rarely do you see a single minister taking sort of control of the, of the operations of witch hunting and directing the Kirk session in a certain way. Even though the minister is supposed to have lots of power, they're supposed to act collectively. You know, the minister is supposed to work in cooperation with the elders who are also on the session. Um, so 
Ephraim Melville seems to have quite an interesting role. Now, in terms of the, it starts off probably in around December 1643, uh, around 16 people were accused. And out of those, about nine were executed. And these were usually quite prominent women. Uh, most of them were, were women of, sort of marinas, people you know, who sailed on ships. There seemed to be some sort of quarrel between uh, a couple of the marina families, um, the Lowry family and the Cants. And this kind of sparked off some of the multiple accusations um, which the Kirk Session and Ephraim Melville seize upon um, to sort of steer the witch hunt further. By the summer of 1644, it kind of burnt itself out. And this is what you see with quite a lot of these chain reaction style witch hunts like Queensferry, where quite a few people are interrogated and accuse each other in short spaces of time. And the community, you know, is obviously at this point is quite isolated and needs to come together in order to go forward. Janet Lowry, her husband, you know, complains to the Kirk session about what they had done to her wife. Um, and then you find some other family members who appear before the Kirk session, who sort of, it's really, really emotionally quite draining and tragic to read some of these stories of family members of some of the accused who have been executed. There's one father, his wife and one of his daughters are executed. They're one of these nine accused witches who get executed. And his second daughter is actually in prison on suspicion of witchcraft. And there's a long legal process involved of trying to get his only surviving daughter, Margaret, Margaret Young, free from uh, prison in, in Queensbury. And they finally do release her in about September uh, 1644. And again, that's something you, you don't usually find in the records is what happens after the witch trials. The witch trials tend to be recorded and then the Kirk session stops and they move on to other business of the day. But um, it's quite insightful when you get, like I say, evidence or what's happening in the community after the witch trials themselves. You know, some of the family members of those who have been accused, it's quite good to get their stories. I think that is a real missing part of history that we kind of think that the tragedy starts and end when people are killed and we don't really reflect upon who had to live in the community with the burden of having a family member killed as a witch and what that meant for them in the community and, and how they dealt with, with their grief. Mm. Kieran, that sounds absolutely yeah. fascinating and we really, really hope we can persuade you to come on and give us a really in-depth, detailed story of the witches of Queensferry when you've finished your studies. Thanks so much for listening to the Witches of Scotland podcast. As ever, please do tell people about the campaign. Please do feel free to comment under some of the news articles that pop up on social media, if anything, just to have some voices of sanity and amongst some completely bonkers takes on the campaign. We are on lots of social media, as we always say. We're on, Claire, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, Twitter. Instagram, TikTok. Oh, in fact, on TikTok, there's History 101 that's now following us on TikTok and they did a wee video and linked us into it and we got like hundreds more people viewing our video. But just to show you the size of social media, this woman that does History 101 was telling people about Witches of Scotland and she got 23,000 views on the video. And that's just cool. one person doing that, as opposed yeah. to our, our rather modest 1,000. Listen, I'll take that 1,000, I'm happy. It's it's quality. It's brilliant. No, it's it's brilliant. And I tell you, as well, we have people on Instagram really, really are interested in getting in contact as well. Quite a lot of people contact us through Insta. But for any immediate chat, well, not immediate, Zoe and I are on Twitter. So if you fancy chatting to us there, that's probably the easiest way of getting in contact with us. Definitely. We might have a second TikTok, Zoe, one with you yeah. in it. I'm not doing a TikTok. I'm not 12. <laughs> My children would also kill me. That's it's a, it's too far. You stick with the TikTok. Your children would never know, Zoe. I'll do a TikTok if you can get some raccoons in on the action. <laughs> if you can, if you can get, you can corral some raccoons, a little gang of raccoons. I'm there, ladies okay. and gents. What you've just been given an insight into is the fact that Zoe introduced me to a, a site which says raccoons hourly 
on yeah, Twitter. Yeah. I send you a photograph of a raccoon every hour on Twitter. Oh, they're so cute, though. They're so cute, the little burglars. <laughs> I love them. They are. Well, I'm sure I wouldn't if I lived in a country that actually had raccoons. They were on my roof and stuff like that. But from the distance of Scotland to Raccoon County, it's I love them. They're just too cute. They can't be that bad where they come from either because people affectionately know them as trash pandas. Trash pandas. It probably isn't, though, if they get in your bins and they knock your bins over and everything. Yeah. You Unless they, like, look up at you winningly from all your rubbish. And then you just go, <laughs> oh, you're so cute, Rocky Raccoon. I love you. And then you just pick all the rubbish up and you're happy for the day. Just to be insane. Probably not like that. Louis' life, she wants to train raccoons. <laughs> I'm going to train raccoons just to sort of be cute and to burglarise. And I'm going to train ravens and crows just to hang out with me. Can I say that I don't think we're helping our cause, really, by making us sound like sane adults? Well, okay. Yes, there's an argument for that. Maybe at this point we should move on. And I should mention that if you like what we do, you can help David, who is the sound engineer, who, as you all know, was signed up for six episodes and is still plugging away, trying to make the stuff that we put together into an acceptable adult form. So David has got his coffee, the, you know, buy him a coffee sort of vibe, um, which is a vibe, it's not a vibe, it's a thing. And we've got links for that, I think, on our various social media. But also we've got merch, our merchandise, our lovely mugs and so on. We don't make any money from that. The money that comes from that just goes to David just to offset his costs, which in no way reflects the amount of work he has to do to turn this pig's ear into a silk purse. <laughs> I can actually see him in my mind's eye getting to the bit about raccoons and just raising just his like, For God's sake, when is my big sister going to grow up with their <laughs> silly friend? <laughs> anyway, happy raccoons to you all and we'll see you next episode. Cool raccoons. <laughs> that's not taking that's not happening that same it is, it is I love that I'm oh, gonna, I've made a place to go okay goodbye goodbye if you'd like to learn more about the witches of Scotland please subscribe wherever you get your podcast sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign on that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. <laughs>